This is the BTEC Basquiat Podcast. I'm Samuel, and this is the pod where we chat music, sport, architecture, art, design in a way that isn't pretentious or gatekeeping. So we can keep it as an open conversation, no matter how much prior knowledge you have in these areas. Uh, This is the fourth episode. I'm so excited to have even reached four episodes. And I think it's a particularly interesting one today. And like I say at the start of every episode, everything I say is entirely unscripted. It's all my personal opinions as well. And I'm just chatting about things I'm interested in in the hope that you guys might be interested too. Or if you don't know about it, you might gain a bit of insight and hopefully be interested in it too. So we're going to look at three topic areas today. We're going to start off by looking at MVRDV's Marble Arch Hill project, which is a bit of architecture. After looking at uh, Jaguar last week, we're going to look at Land Rover again after their press release saying that by the end of the decade, they want to be a fully electric car brand. And then we're going to finish off by looking at a couple of artists that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you, along with a new album that is set to drop soon and I think will be a bit of a highlight of 2021 to be honest. So yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of the pod. Before I kick off, I just want to say feel free to get involved on Twitter, which is at btechbasquiat, all one word. We'd love to hear from you, any feedback you have on the pod. And also please get involved in the conversation on the topics because that is the overall goal of this, is that I want this, like I say, to be an open, an open conversation no matter how much prior knowledge you have. So in the first segment of today's episode, I want to start off by looking at the Marble Arch Hill project. But I think it's best to start by discussing uh, MVRDV, who are the studio which designed the project. Um, And they're a Rotterdam-based architectural practice founded in 1993. They tend to produce more sort of large-scale commercial architecture, but in a very recognisable and free trademark way, essentially. They're hugely critically successful um, and sort of quite notable for their more research orientated design and quite sort of mathematical architecture, which I know sounds a bit ridiculous because all architecture to some degree has to be mathematical. But there's a lot of sort of patterns and repetitive nature to a lot of what they do, which makes them quite sort of unique. And some of their architecture is truly breathtaking, but my only sort of first-hand introduction to their work was when I went on holiday to Rotterdam and visited the, uh, I think it's pronounced Markfall, Markfall, I'm not sure, um, but it's like a sort of large, well, they describe it as a project that combines food, leisure, living and parking, which I think summarises it pretty well, but it is essentially like a large open uh, food market in, in Rotterdam. But it's definitely one of my favourite pieces of architecture that I've ever experienced. So I just want to run through it a little bit because I think it gives quite a good sort of bit of context to the kind of projects that they produce. So it's essentially like a 13 storey high archway with a glass exposed tunnel uh, housing a food market. And the archway is surrounded in apartments, uh, 228 apartments apparently. Uh, the whole way round, which includes uh, directly above the food hall. So it's a full archway of apartment. I recommend also, just, just having heard myself uh, try to explain it, I recommend looking at a visual reference because it really is unlike most architecture you, you ever will see. 
Um, and I just want to drop in a little plug there that we do post visual references for everything that we talk about on the pod uh, on our Twitter, which is at BTEC Basquiat. But if that's too much effort, you just give it a give it a Google and you'll see plenty of images. But the apartments have windows um, in the floors and the side side walls, depending on what position the apartment is around the archway, which gives views directly onto the market, but also means that you can sort of see just how many apartments there are when you're inside the hall. But the market roof is is 40 metres high, with the underside covered in, it looks sort of like a surreal food-themed mural. Um, and this, along with the porthole, sort of makes it feel a little bit aquarium-themed. It's quite unusual. But um, when I was sort of looking this up prior to, prior to the pod, I mean, I didn't quite know... Uh, too much about the mural itself but it's apparently titled Cornucopia and it was rendered using um, Pixar software and printed on these aluminium panels Um, but they noted a reference for it uh, which was the sort of Dutch still life paintings and I think that that is spot on to be honest it's very sort of surreal but highly detailed with these sort of really rich um, autumnal colours but I know that that doesn't sound particularly aquarium-esque but when you see it, it, it definitely does give that feeling, especially because the market hall itself is enclosed by two huge 40 metre high um, sort of glass walls, which, which definitely, definitely helps. But the market building itself features a full size supermarket um, in the basement, which then has 1,200 parking spaces below that. And I actually went to that supermarket. I remember when I went on holiday to the, to the Netherlands. Uh, they have these sort of Dutch marzipan cakes, which became a bit of an addiction. Uh, they're called like mudgypies, mudgypies. I, I absolutely butchered Dutch right there. But um, I remember visiting that supermarket on many occasions. But I think that that sort of full-size supermarket in the parking spaces gives you a bit of a sense of just the grand size of the building itself. Um, I'm sorry for this sort of ramble, but that's sort of not even the project I want to talk about. The, the project I want to talk about reminded me of one I read about that they also actually created and preceded the Mark file. And that's part of the Serpentine Gallery in London. Um, the gallery since 2000 have installed a temporary summer pavilion in the park for three months, uh, once a year, every year. And a different architectural practice um, and on one occasion, an artist, I believe, but a different architectural practice uh, usually get involved every single year. Um, and it's a bit of a sort of global uh, hunt for architecture, architectural ability and architectural talent. Um, and it's quite a highlight of the calendar, I think. Um, but they often do it on quite a limited budget. Um, and then the pavilion tends to host sort of like art and music events, or it certainly has done in more recent years. Other than last year, because of coronavirus, there's actually only been one year where there has been no pavilion at all. And that year is 2004, which was MVRDV's proposal year. And the proposal looked at creating a mountain over the entire Serpentine Gallery, which is hugely ambitious. The hill could be walked over, uh, it sort of had a guided route flowing around it, um, a small sort of they almost look like cave-like entry points to access the gallery itself. And when I was sort of looking this up before the pod, I saw a great quote from uh, Serpentine's director, uh, Julia Payton-Jones. Um, and she described the to Deason as a heroic failure, which I think is, is pretty 
harsh but pretty accurate. I mean, it's understandable there would have been huge health and safety considerations and astronomical construction costs. Um, when you place a building over a building, those things are going to happen. But um, it's a shame, I think, that they couldn't have just scaled it down um, sort of covered part of the gallery or sort of surrounded the gallery or something. I think there's there's ways around it, but I understand that it's sort of quite an ambitious vision and they probably wanted to keep it that way. I feel sort of almost as a successor to this first attempt, the studio are now looking to build this sort of artificial hill alongside Marble Arch in London. It's sort of unfinished business in a sense. They sort of creatively named it Marble Arch Hill. Um, it's been commissioned by Westminster City Council with the intention of bringing people back to the area post-pandemic. Uh, the structure is going to be 25 metres high and will open in July, all being well. It'll be constructed like the first proposal from scaffolding, which will then be layered with plywood and then soil will be placed on top to create sort of a realistic hill which will feature plants of grass and uh, trees and planters. It'll also have a like the first a guided route that runs around the hill, um, but this time it'll end in a events hall which will be underneath the hill. And with this sort of like events hall, you can see the similarities in both the designs of the pavilion, but also the concept of the pavilion as a whole. Um, with the sort of events hub underneath, they're sort of trying to attract people in the in the same sort of way with a art centric focus. NVRDV are very clear that they want as little waste as possible with the sort of vast majority of this sort of temporary structure being uh, reused and redistributed after. I'm, I'm sorry that this uh, spotlight on Marble Arch Hill turns more into an MVRDV uh, case study, but I think they're sort of a fascinating studio with a really sort of interesting link between the projects and a really interesting evolution in their designs, which is definitely worth discussing and I recommend looking more into it but I also recommend looking at Deason's um, video series that they did with the uh, Serpentine director Julia Payton-Jones where she does individual videos looking at all of the um, events that they carried out each year um, every year and sort of talking about the process behind um, the design of these structures and it's, it's really interesting to hear her view on it. So in this next segment, I want to talk about Land Rover, because in the last episode, I talked about the future of Jaguar, um, and now I want to move on to Land Rover after the JLR family announced that by 2024, they want the release of the first all-electric Land Rover, and then by the end of the decade, they're looking for all of their models across the Jaguar and Land Rover families to be available in electric powertrains. Um, and I just want to preface this discussion or this analysis of the uh, Land Rover lineup by saying that I am a diehard Land Rover fan. My dream car would be an old TD5 Defender 90, if that means anything to you at all. So prepare for some controversial opinions, but some passionate opinions, I'm, I'm going to say. I don't want this to be a deep history dive or anything, um, or sort of talk about the meaning of the brand. I just want to dissect their current lineup um, to just sort of discuss what's working and what isn't to be able to give an idea of sort of how that might shape uh, JLR's decision making over this sort of transitional period throughout the next decade. And just a note in case you're not super into car brands, um, there's JLR is Jaguar and Land Rover which is a joint family 
Um, and there's always been a, la- a sort of lineup division within Land Rover between uh, Land Rover and Range Rovers, but they're both Land Rovers, which doesn't make much sense, but it is what it is. Um, but it's all under one roof, and Land Rover has always been sort of targeted more towards uh, utility and utilities for sort of family cars, while Range Rover's always been sort of more luxury but sort of practical luxury. I want to start off by looking at Discovery Sport. Uh, It's the entry-level Land Rover and it's sort of quite a compact generic family SUV. It's the successor to what used to be the Freelander and they had two generations I believe and then they brought the Discovery Sport in with the new generation of Discovery. It's super generic. I don't have much else to say about it. It it could be rebranded as a Hyundai, and I think few people would know. It possesses only sort of subtle Land Rover DNAs. I think that the sort of Land Rover DNA that's sort of more prevalent is probably the window line, which is shared with Discovery and a lot of the Range Rover models. But as soon as you look at the car from the front or the back, it, it could be a Hyundai. It, it starts from £31,000 with a super dated interior, especially compared to the other JLR models um, and quite a sort of measly options list really but that brings me on to the next uh, model which is the Range Rover Evoque which has practically the same starting price I think there's like a grand or grand and a half in it but it's significantly more attractive significantly more desirable it's a huge upgrade from the previous generation of Evoque but I will say that it has probably the most dull color options you can imagine It literally has three kinds of white and six variations of silver and the only two actual colours other than white, black or grey are red and blue and I mean they're quite dull colours in themselves but why are brands using this sort of boring colour palette? When I was sort of thinking about this a little bit earlier I guess maybe resale value it's easier to resell a grey car or a brown car because it's quite a sort of universally accepted colour. I don't quite know how else to word it really, um, but that, that's the only thing I can think of really. Maybe maybe these sort of greys and whites are more accepted across uh, sort of a larger market that they sell the car in, I don't know. But it does have a hugely luxurious options list this Evoque, which also brings a hugely luxurious price. Um, and it, it can really sort of, not steadily, but quite quickly creep up the uh, price of the Evoque depending on how you option it out. But um, the sort of one drawback granting the sort of benefit to the Discovery Sport is that the Discovery Sport is far more spacious than the Evoque. So the next step up is also the first and the next price tier up and that is the Range Rover Velar. Um, it starts from £45,000 and in my opinion is the best looking car that not just Land Rover but JLR as a family make. It's absolutely beautiful, it's aesthetically a longer Evoque, but I guess the Velar came before the Evoque, so the Evoque's a short Velar. But um, it's a luxurious, sort of sleek SUV with a huge amount of road presence and, in my opinion, is more attractive and more premium looking than a lot of Range Rovers further up the list that are also twice the price. But um, this is the first evidence of quite an interesting option, which is the new uh, ultra-metallic colours being offered. And it's a £5,000 paint option, which is your only way of, again, not having these sort of whites, greys, or the one red and the one blue. They're sort of like British Racing Green and things like that are offered, but £5,000 is an eye-watering amount of money for paint. I think that is a a misstep from Land Rover, but 
you see it first on the Evoke, it's in the Velar, and it's certainly not missing from the other Range Rovers that are on this list. The next model sits at the same sort of price bracket, but this time is on the Land Rover side of the family, rather than Range Rover, and it's the new Defender. Controversial, um, it starts from £44,000. A big asterisk there, as it's that, that price is for a smaller, sort of arguably less desirable 90 variant of the, of the Defender. Because the Defender comes in a 90 and a 110 variant. The 110 being a sort of five-door longer model, and the 90 being a, a very stubby uh, three-door, two-door model, um, using the same names as the last generation of Defender. But the 110 starts from £46,000, and you're looking at sort of 55 for anything sort of non-farmer grade and by that I mean that doesn't have steel wheels doesn't have plastic everywhere if you're looking for a family defender 55 is your is your starting point really the new defender like I, t I just mentioned it briefly is controversial for sort of diehard defender fans which is certainly a minority the defender is an entirely different car to the old defender I personally believe that the new defender is probably exactly what the new discovery should have been. Uh, this, 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 you could say this Defender is the best discovery yet. It has the exact same dimensions as the old gen of the, of the Land Rover Discovery, but it's a more luxurious version of the old Defender, which is exactly what a discovery is. I also think this new Defender is the only example of unique Land Rover design, but it's fantastic. I, I mean, the Velar is my favourite piece of Land Rover design, but it shares so many traits from the other Range Rovers offered that it isn't unique by, by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's just that design and that collection of design traits perfected. But this new Defender is something entirely unique, I think. I understand the value of the name that, that putting a Defender on a car gives to it, especially across the various markets in the world. People no matter what the vehicle looks like, would be much more willing to purchase a Defender than a Discovery because it has certain connotations to the name Defender. So I understand why they built this new Defender, but it is, like I say, it's, it's what the Discovery should have been. Because it's, it's utilitarian-styled luxury. It's a super convenient family SUV. It's like nothing else on the road right now. But it also has, like the other models, a brilliant options list. Um, with great sort of variants that can quickly double the vehicle's price. But in the last few days, many of the Land Rover models, but probably most notably the Defender, because it's so early in, it, in its lifetime, um, has had a refresh. They are now offering a V8 engine, which is particularly interesting because they're sort of historically up until the very sort of last years of the Defender, there hasn't been these sort of large V8 engine sports models but it's also something that's now expected of an SUV. There has to be a sports variant of it. Like with Audi, you can get the uh, sort of RS Q5. Um, with BMW, you've, you've got the sort of 5 Series SUV, which you can get in M Sport. So it's sort of expected now. Um, and that is now an offering of the Defender lineup. Um, and also there's now new finishes and excitingly, a brand new silver shade of it. It also has an upgraded screen option, which I'm quite torn about. Um, I think it adds only an inch to the old screen, but it's bringing on board the new Land Rover infotainment. But the old screen, you have to look at pictures of it, but it sits quite snugly 
and it's quite a subtle infotainment, which I think works best for the new Defender and, and the sort of DNA of the Defender. It's not a techie car historically. And I think this the, the sort of Defender with the smaller screen takes this DNA, but also adds the sort of necessary infotainment that you get in these cars. Because um, you couldn't buy a car without, without um, Apple CarPlay or something like that nowadays. But I think it does it in a subtle way. And by adding this screen upgrade, it gets rid of any subtlety at all. But I'm, yeah, like I say, I'm torn because it's a fantastic upgrade for not that much money, actually. I think it's only a hundred or so pounds more. But I, I think it adds a lot to the vehicle, but takes a lot away from it aesthetically. But that brings me on to the next model, which is the Discovery. I've already slated it a little bit, uh, saying that the Defender should be the new Discovery. And that is because I think that the Discovery is the ugliest car, not just Jaguar Land Rover make, but a lot of, uh, it's the ugliest car on the road right now, I think. It's one of the most sort of aesthetically unbalanced new cars you can buy. It's got a sort of weird hunchback SUV style. Looking through the website, interestingly, there is not one single image of the car from the back. Not one. I genuinely mean that. You can go and have a look on their website. There is not a single one. And it's for a very good reason. And it's because it's got a horrible off-centre, sort of offset uh, number plate on the rear. It looks like an ugly cargo plane, I think is the only way I can describe it. It's the height of a lorry. It's absolutely huge as well. It's basically like a panel van. I just hate it. Absolutely hate it. I'm sorry for going too hard on it. Um, I just have a real personal hatred of this car. I have no sort of understanding of why this would be your choice of Land Rover with, with all of the other models and considering the quite high price of this new Discovery as well. But like most Land Rover models this year, it has had a midlife refresh. Um, it's got the exact same new screen which you can option out in the Defender um, and a couple of trim changes, colour color additions, things like that. Um, but I guess the selling point of it is that it's absolutely huge. But the new Defender does everything better than the Discovery, probably other than cargo size, for a cheaper price and in a more desirable body. Um, it's, I mean, it's a body style that you're not going to be humiliated about driving around in. But I think that when you see rich people buy Land Rovers, rich people buy Range Rovers, but rich, rich people drive these Discoveries, it's just, I think that's just a fact. Because rich people <laughs> often lack taste. I don't. It's a practical farmery Land Rover, which is absolutely ugly. It's absolutely huge, though, and I think that summarises it really. But now we're moving up to the next sort of price bracket, and we're looking at the Range Rover Sport. When many people think of Land Rover, this is actually what they think of, uh, sort of other than the old Defender. The Range Rover Sport is probably what you see the most of on the road. It's a rich stay-at-home parents car. It starts from £65,000. It's sort of perfectly luxurious and capable, but I think that other Land Rover models have that. Uh, people buy this Range Rover Sport because of the presence. It, it's as simple as that. I think it's probably due a refresh. It doesn't look quite as sleek as sort of the other Land Rover models. And it's sort of quite like a gas guzzler model. So I think this is a particularly interesting one for the sort of electrification over the next decade. I wonder whether it would be as desirable for the sort of target market that are looking to buy a Range Rover Sport. It'd be interesting to see how they change that. And then the last model um, on the lineup is their flagship, it's their flagship Range Rover. 
It's absolutely pure luxury. Um, it's available in just sort of a standard body shape, which is absolutely huge, um, or the long wheelbase, which is even bigger um, and is the sort of model you would buy if you're being driven around rather than driving it. It sort of depends on the on the kind of wealth you are when buying it. The sort of old money choice, I'd say, is it's a farmer's daily, essentially. It can be optioned out to almost £200,000, um, but it starts from £84,000 and, as you can imagine, has a phenomenal options list with all kinds of luxuries that probably pitted against many sort of Rolls Royces, things like that. Um, it's Cullinan, even though the Cullinan is sort of three times, four times the price, it's definitely still a competitor. And just before I finish, I just wanted to run through a couple of the variants and the options you can get for all of these models, um, which I think sort of dictate a little bit the direction that Land Rover are already moving in. They offer an MHEV for pretty much all of their models I think which is like a mild hybrid they also offer a plug-in hybrid and they're available like I say on just about all the models but they also have the SVR which I mentioned briefly um, on Jaguar but it's essentially their sort of sport division and they offer sports variants of the Velar, the Range Rover Sport and the full-sized Range Rover they're sort of like luxurious and bespoke options, but quite often they're just sort of like V8 engines installed, especially in the Velar's case. So it'll be interesting to see how that's transitioned out. Will it become sort of a more electric sport division? Uh, I, I think it'd be sad to see it go. So it'd be definitely interesting to see how that evolves towards the end of the decade. But also interestingly, they offer commercial variants of the Discovery and the Defender which are very strange because basically what it does is it takes out the sort of rear block of seats but keeps the rear doors and everything and then replaces the glass with just sort of like a black panel. So from the outside it looks like a normal Defender or a normal Discovery but inside it's basically a commercial van which is very peculiar really. I think I'd understand if you were buying it if you have a business that requires you to drive off-road regularly but otherwise, I have no idea why you would buy a commercial Discovery over a panel van, even though they look quite similar. It's quite quite weird, especially if the Discovery is sort of like twice the price of a average like VW Crafter or something like that. So interesting. I'm sure that there's a target market for it. They wouldn't produce them if people weren't buying them. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see how Land Rover is really sort of going to evolve. I really do feel over the next decade, especially as I imagine they're probably going to have a couple of electric exclusive models sort of slotted within their lineup. be interesting to see what gets culled, um, what gets sort of evolved, and how Land Rover will look as a business at the end of this decade. I think that things such as the Discovery Sport will probably disappear or will become a more entry-level electric SUV or something like that. But definitely interesting to see um, and I'd love to know what you guys think about Land Rover and JLR as a business um, after that sort of quite exciting press release. Yeah, I'd love to know you guys' opinions. So for the last segment, I just want to chat about some new music that I've been listening to. Uh, I want to mix it up between the episodes, like last week we took a deep dive on Slow Tie's latest album 
And I think that's really enjoyable to do, but sometimes I just want to highlight some individual songs and that's exactly what I want to do today. So I want to kick off by chatting about an artist that I've only just discovered this week, but he has quite a back catalogue and he's called Q. He's an R&B artist from South Florida and he released an EP, I think towards the back end of last year, called The Shave Experiment. He's a super sort of funky, bassy artist Probably his most direct comparison, I'd say, would be Steve Lacey, who is well worth a listen. He sort of gives, in a similar way to Steve, uh, sort of quite like jazzy R&B, bassy aesthetic. But he has this really unique uh, high, soft falsetto voice, which is unlike any other male artist right now, I think, and certainly unlike any other male R&B artist. But it makes his music really, really unique and beautiful, And his most famous track, and probably one of my favourites, is Take Me Where Your Heart Is, which is from this EP, and shows his his full range best, I think. It's an entire journey through the track, it really is. It's really mellow, but I think, again, looking at Steve Lacey, this track is quite a direct comparison, I'd say, to Dark Red by Steve Lacey, which is one of my favourite tracks. But um, my personal favourite of, of Q's is garage rooftop um for me it's his best he has this real ability which i think is highlighted best on this track of creating a really sort of beautiful atmosphere with with his songs it's more like a sort of like journey through the track it's like a it's like a trip it, it's a roller coaster and i mean i don't want to like oversell it or overplay it but i think that's just the easiest way to explain it and his for, sort of like flawlessly beautiful falsetto vocals just add to that entirely but the bassy sort of nature and beautiful uh, atmospheric acoustics that he puts in these tracks without even the vocals are an atmospheric journey and I think he is well worth a listen but yeah Gaud Rooftop is my favourite on that but probably his best example of his full range like I say is, is Take Me Where Your Heart Is but they're both really great tracks but um at the moment, I'm on a full uh, Brent Fayez trip. I'm in an absolute uh, Brent moment right now. I listened to his uh, his last album last year and basically haven't been able to stop listening to it. For months now, I've been listening to Clouded. It's on my sort of like daily playlist. I have this overkill playlist system on Spotify where I essentially have like a daily or a sort of weekly playlist. But then once I've listened to all those songs for the week, I scrap them and start again. And the songs I like the most from this sort of weekly playlist, I then put into sort of like a larger database playlist, essentially. And that's the sort of way that I categorise my music and remember what I like listening to and what I don't. And then uh, all the other tracks just get put in one massive playlist. So in case there's a song that I actually realise what I did actually like, uh, it won't be lost forever. But um, Clouded has been topping that weekly playlist. And... No matter what gets scrapped from it, Clouded always seems to be staying at the moment. I'm just having an absolute moment with it. But looking back on his discography, I sort of like rediscovered his track with um, Paperboy called Language. And it was from 2017, but it's such a great track. And looking at his latest music and like his track with Tyler the Creator, Gravity, which is also great. And these just incredible pieces of music that he's been making. But... It's quite easy to realise that all of this 
has been sort of foreshadowed by this track in 2017 called Language because it really showed what was in his locker sort of three, four years before he even reached the heights that he is now. And that, I have a feeling, might be stuck on my uh, weekly playlist for a while because it really is fantastic and well worth a listen. And then the last uh, artist that I just want to touch on is Ralph Castelli. He's an LA-based artist and his new song, Morning Sex, is great. It's super cool, sort of synthy, indie pop, I'd describe it as. I first came across this track when a SoundCloud user that I was listening to called Tired of People, he titled this sort of edit of, of uh, Castelli's song Slow to Perfection, and I think that really nails it because this SoundCloud edit, it, it simply does slow it down, but it changes the song completely, and it made me have to go listen to Castelli's original because they are almost like two entirely different songs. But that SoundCloud version for me is is the one. But it's it's good and well worth a listen. It, it completely changes the feel of the track and makes you appreciate the details of Ralph Castelli's original even more, I think. But uh, the one last thing that I just wanted to talk about in this music segment is an album that it hasn't released yet and doesn't actually have a release date, I don't think. But there is a track from it coming out next week, so I thought I had to talk about it. And Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack have announced that they're doing a collaborative album called Supersonic. It'll be really interesting to listen to, I think, as they're both artists with a modern take on funk, really, uh, with sort of Bruno Mars attacks funk from a more sort of like pop angle, while Anderson Pack, who I've been a fan of for years and years since his uh, 2016 album, is more sort of like a rap and R&B funk artist. But it'll be particularly interesting because Bruno Mars hasn't actually released an album since 24 Karat Magic in 2016. So it'll be interesting to see how the last four or five years have changed him as an artist or if he has changed at all. Because in 2016 and prior to that, he was like one of the biggest artists in the world. And I think people have slightly forgotten about him and just sort of the cultural significance of the songs that he has released. So it'll be great to see the two of them working together as they are sort of really similar artists but like I say attack their sort of genre of choice from two completely different angles but yeah can't wait for that and that will definitely be worth a listen next week thank you so much for listening to the fourth episode of the BTEC Basquiat podcast I'm already so excited to make the fifth episode, um, which will be out next week. But yeah, sorry if this one's been a little bit of a rambly episode. Like I say, all of these are unscripted. So when I get a topic that I'm passionate about or particularly passionate about, like Land Rover, it does get a little bit uh, opinionated and rambly. So that won't be every week for sure. But um, yeah, it, it did stretch on a little bit. So I'm sorry about that. But if you guys do have any opinions on... The architecture or music or or Land Rover if you if you want to get in a conversation with me about it uh, I'd love for you guys to get involved on our Twitter which is at BTech Basquiat um, and please listen to the sort of back catalogue that I'm developing of these pods now because I love I love chatting about these things that interest me and I really hope they interest you too so I look forward to speaking with you next week and I hope you enjoyed today's pod